to pray before we open the word. That is the goal of preaching, to bring our will in conformity to our Lord's will, our love in conformity to his loves, our thoughts in conformity to his thoughts, that we would think his thoughts after him, love what he loves after him, will what he wills after him. May God answer that prayer as we consider John 15. As you Turn in the scriptures of John 15. Let me remind you of the overarching narrative of scriptures. I think you'll see how this fits into John 15 here in a minute. The whole plot of scriptures, you know, begins in the book of Genesis as we read of a very good God creating a very good universe filled with the marvels of his creative power. And in the center of that universe, he created a garden in which he placed the first man and the first woman, given the task to tend the garden to be fruitful and to multiply. We quickly learn in Genesis, though, that something is not right in God's good universe. We read of the cunning serpent in Genesis 3 who was more cunning than all the other creatures, who spoke to Eve words of doubt and deception about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We find out later in Scripture that this serpent that appeared in the garden of Genesis 3 is God's arch enemy. We find that out particularly in the book of Revelation. He is the accuser of the brethren, also known as as Satan, as Beelzebul. He is the arch nemesis of the God of heaven. We find out that prior to his arrival in the Garden of Eden, he had rebelled against God in heaven, sought the glory of God for himself as a created being of God and was cast out of heaven by the righteous, holy God himself, and took with him a third of the angels who sided with him rather than with their creator and maker. And this cunning serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 tells Eve that she can take of the forbidden fruit and she'll be like God. And so she takes of that fruit, she's deceived, she eats it, then she gives it to her husband who is there with her. He takes and eats it and God then shows up in the cool of the day for their normal time of walking and talking together in the garden, but it's different this time. They're hiding from him, ashamed of their rebellion against him, knowing trouble is about to come. He confronts Adam and Eve with their rebellion. He pronounces upon them the curse that will fall on all of creation because of their rebellion. And as the Lord pronounces this curse on mankind, he starts, interestingly enough, with the serpent. He says in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You could argue, and I think rightly so, that the rest of Scripture is a working out of that reality, of that curse pronounced and of that contention struck in the garden. Satan works tirelessly against God and his plan of redemption. He heard the promise given in Genesis 3. He knows his Waterloo is coming. He knows the crushing of his head is around the corner But he can't help himself. He acts according to his nature, seeking to thwart the good works of God in the world. And as the plot of Scripture works on on its way through the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, it's carried along by this constant conflict. 
between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Satan's tribe and God's tribe, as it were. Satan's army and God's army. By the way, parents of young children, if you're interested in a good book that puts us in story form, what I just said to you carries it throughout Scripture. It's called Grandpa's Box by Star Mead. It's not perfect. It's not the Scriptures, but it is a tremendous book. My kids hung on every word of that book. It's worth reading a chapter a night if they'll only let you read one. It's worth it. But this conflict started in the garden is carried throughout the Scripture. Immediately in Genesis 4, Abel is killed by Cain. The seed of the woman is killed by, you could argue, the seed of the serpent. In Exodus, Pharaoh seeks to destroy Moses and Moses' people. In the historical books, Goliath challenges the Lord's army and mocks the shepherd boy David who's sent out or walks out by faith and thinks that he'll strike him down with one blow. The Assyrian army comes against Jerusalem and and threatens its complete demise. Babylon comes against Jerusalem and does destroy the walls and the temple of Jerusalem and carries into exile God's people. This conflict carries throughout the Old Testament, but it moves into the New Testament too. The first story we come across in the New Testament is the birth of John the Baptist leading to the birth of Jesus, which leads immediately to conflict. When Herod the Great finds out that there is a new king born in Bethlehem, he doesn't know who it is. He orders the murder of all young babies, two years old and under, to die in Bethlehem to eliminate the threat. As the storyline of that conflict unfolds, we're finally told in the book of Revelation how it will all one day be brought to a close. The conquering king, Jesus, will cast the nasty, wicked serpent into the eternal lake of fire along with all those who serve him. And Christ will rule and reign forever as the unchallenged, unrivaled, undefeated, eternal champion of all, ruling and reigning over us. Glory be that day. Until that day, we still find ourselves in the conflict. As we come to John 15, we're hours away from the climax of this storyline. Really the greatest of all battle scenes, and you know what I'm talking about, it's the cross of Calvary. The hero of the story, Jesus Christ, will die in what appears to be an epic defeat by Satan. But in reality, it's the the complete conquering of the enemy. It is in that death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus, the hero of the story, actually takes away all the weapons of the enemy's warfare. He conquers sin and death and hell. And he provides a way for his followers, those chosen before the creation of the world, to be released from their sinful condition, be made right with the God of heaven. Jesus rises from the grave proves that the victory was and will forever be completely his. But though the victory was won through his death, burial, and resurrection, you know the battles must still be fought until the day of reckoning, which is judgment day. And so in John 15, Jesus is telling his followers, listen, there's an in-between time. I'm leaving, I'm departing, and it's going to be hard for you. There's time in between the the accomplishing of my victory, and the full realization of all the benefits of my victory. 
And he wants his disciples to know that what you're going to face when I'm gone is what I faced when I was here. I don't want you to be surprised by the conflict, Jesus says. You're in a war, and the whole world is on the enemy's side. And so he says, I want you to be ready. As the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Be ready for the battle. To follow along as I read the words of Jesus, I'll start reading John 15, verse 17, down through verse 25. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is Jesus' commentary on Genesis 3, verse 15, for his disciples. He is explaining to them the, the reality of the warfare that they have now entered into as his disciples. A war that will rage well after Jesus has left and ascended to heaven. He wants them to be prepared and not surprised. And so in these verses, he unmasks the enemy. He pulls back their cape and he shows the reality of their opposition, of their hatred, and of their persecution. And he wants them to know, the disciples, that listen, if you are abiding in me, you will be hated by the world. Now, that really is the theme of John 15, isn't it? Abiding in Christ. We came across that right away. Jesus used the wonderful metaphor of a vine and its branches. He said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And he went on to describe all the benefits of abiding in him. You'll have answered prayer. You'll have abundant, long-lasting love, both my love and love for one another. And you'll know superseding joy. You'll have joy in all things. It's an amazing promise. It's a, a wonderful description of the Christian life. But he goes on from there to let them know, listen, that's not all there is to abiding in Christ. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you hear and obey my words, if you walk in my love for one another and for others, listen, this will happen. The world will hate you. The world will oppose you. The world will seek to destroy you. As he prepares them for this opposition, he wants them to know that this can actually be a blessing for them. That in this hatred, there's actually a lot of spiritual blessing for them to be had. That can only happen if we know the why, remember the who, and understand the what. Those are our three headings. Know the why, remember the who, and understand the what. The first is know the why. 
We see that right away in verses 18 to 19. Jesus is, is taking off the mask of the intimidation of Satan. He's explaining to his disciples why it is that the, the world around will hate them. He says, listen, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. Know that this hatred is actually for me, not for you. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, you were of the world, but I loved you and chose you out of the world. But when you were in the world, the world loved you, or literally the world loves its own. They love the world's things. As long as you conform to the world, don't rock the boat, go along with what they think is good and right and and wonderful, then they will love you. They will have a brotherhood of evil that you'll be a part of. But if you are chosen out of the world and made a disciple of Jesus, then know that the world will oppose you and will hate you. So why will they be hated? Because they've been chosen out by Christ. The world hates Christ, therefore the world hates them. It'd be helpful to know who is this world that Jesus is talking about in verses 18 and 19. He uses the word six different times. He's laying upon the disciples the the reality of the threat. He wants them to know this is a major deal that they will face in their discipleship. Well, who is the world? Well, he made clear in verse 19 that they were of the world. So they know what the world is. They used to be part of it. But he chose them out of the world to make them his own disciples. So really, the dichotomy of the text is that there's only two options. You're either of the world or in Christ. And he says, I have chosen you out of the world to make you my own. Therefore, the world hates you. There's more than that as you consider the rest of Scripture. You think about who the world is. The the world is all those who hate Christ and all that is his. They're in rebellion against God, against his son, against his followers. The world is the evil system of rebellion which dominates the here and now earthly realm. It's seen in, in people, in governments, in culture, in customs, in laws, in legal systems. It's seen in authority structures. It's seen in workplace environments and family relationships. Everything that makes up the stuff of human life on earth is part of this system of evil rebellion hatched by Satan in eternity past in heaven, brought by Satan to the world, brought into humankind through deception of Eve and through the sinful rebellion of Adam, our head, and now we are all infected from the moment of our conception with the worldview of that rebellion. We are anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth from the womb, thinking we know better than him, wanting to run our own life. And so, to be a disciple of Jesus, you will be at war with the world, or better said, the, war, the world will be at war with you. Did you notice the, the dichotomy of verses 17 to 18? I started with verse 17 on purpose, because Jesus moves from the love that the disciples have for one another to the hatred that the world has of the disciples. In other words, there's an either-or reality here in the text, and it's all throughout Scripture. You cannot have and know the, the love of the world and the love of Christ and his church. You cannot abide in the love of Christ and the love of the world. 
You cannot be in Christ and be of the world too. The church is known for loving one another and the world is known for hating the church. That's what this text lays before us this morning. And again, the, answer, the question is why? And the answer is because they hate Christ. And because they hate Christ, they hate those who are Christ's. D.A. Carson in his commentary says it helpfully this way. He says, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. You've changed teams. You've deserted from the side of the world to the side of Christ, not by your own choosing, but by the grace of Christ. And this puts you as an enemy combatant to all that opposes Christ. Now, if we understand the why, then we ought not be surprised when this hatred and opposition comes against us. Now, there's a lot of other things to say about Christians' relationship to the world. I'm addressing what this text talks about. A lot of things to say about the wisdom and the prudence and the love that you need for the lost and how these interactions should look. What this text addresses is the hatred that the world has for the church. So let's be clear with what the text says. The text says the world will hate us because it hates our Lord, our, our Savior, our Christ. Jesus said this all throughout Scripture, Luke 6, the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He assumes it's going to happen. People are going to spurn you. They're going to revile you. They're going to hate you. Why? Because you're connected to the Son of Man. And they're at war with him. Therefore, they're at war with you. He says in James 4, James says in James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a spiritual truth there that has two sides. To be a friend of God makes you an enemy of the world, and to be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. You cannot have both. In 1 John 3, the apostle John, I think probably with his own gospel in front of him, maybe even reading John 15, writes his letter to the churches who are suffering in the first century. And he says this in, in verse 1 of 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then he comes back around to that in verse 13, and he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. They don't know you. You're not of them anymore. They don't understand you. You don't make sense to them. You're a pariah to them. Therefore, don't be surprised when they hate you, when they oppose you, when they revile you, when they shame you, and when they mock you. But Jesus says, the world will hate you because it has hated me. Know the why. Also, remember the who, verses 20 and 21. That's the second command in our text. The first command is to know. The second command is to remember. Know that the world hated Christ before it hated you. 
And now remember who it is that you are, whose it is that you are. Remember the who. The who that they're to remember, obviously, is Christ himself. And when they remember Christ, it puts all of that opposition and hatred of the world into perspective. And to make the point, Jesus quotes himself in verse 20. He quotes himself from earlier in the upper room in chapter 13, verse 16. He had donned the slave's towel. He had gotten down from dinner at the Last Supper, and he had washed all of their feet in a humbling act of service. And then he got up and used that uh, service as a teaching moment and said to them, listen, the servant is not greater than his master. Go and do as you have seen your master do. Now here in John 15, he returns that same thought to make another point. The servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted you, me, they will persecute you. If they listened to me, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. By the way, I think that last phrase is a a glimmer of hope. It's, It's wind in the sails of the ship that's fighting against the storm. There will be some who will receive the gospel, and who will be won away from their own rebellion. There are some who will listen. Just like in Jesus' ministry, many rejected. The whole world came against him at the cross. But some followed, some believed, and some held to the faith. So too with his disciples. Think with me for a minute about this persecution that's promised in verse 20. I want you to consider first the persecution and then the persecuted. I'll get to the who, but before I get to the who, think about the nature of this persecution. The word in the original implies to impel something or someone, to to try to move something by force. It's used in another Greek text, a non-biblical text, to speak of, of trying to get a boat across the water with a paddle. You're impelling the boat. You're moving it by force with your own effort. That's what persecution is. It's, it's a coming upon something in forceful motion to move them away from their current beliefs and practices. It's intimidation. It's mental maneuvering. It's emotional manipulation. It's physical force. Trying to move someone away from something you think to be unacceptable Maybe you even think it to be dangerous to society, deadly to others. If, if what that person has to say, we're all in trouble. If, if everyone listens to them, therefore we need to get rid of them. And so social pressure, threats, false accusations, imprisonment, fines, job losses, public shame and ridicule, marginalization in the classroom or the workplace, family shunning, physical force, and obviously the climax of it, the murder of the person who opposes you. This persecution throughout Scripture has several components to it. And, and by components, I mean things that, that spark it, that, that drive it in the heart of the persecutor. First, there's the truth component. There's four of these total. The first is the truth component. The world hates us because we hold to and speak the truth. And simply said, those who are outside of Christ cannot stand the truth. They hate the light because their works are evil, Jesus said in John 3, verse 19. And when the light shines upon them, they they scurry like insects to hide under the cover of their deception. 
But we see in Jesus' own ministry in John 7 and verse 7, when he's talking to his brothers, his unbelieving brothers, by the way, about going up to Jerusalem to the feast, he says to them, the world cannot hate you, because, but it hates me because I testify about it that it, its works are evil. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because he told them, you're rebellious sinners. You think you're religious, you think you've done everything to be right with God, and I'm here to tell you, sent from the Father on high, that you are in sin, condemned by the Father who sent me. They didn't like that. The world never does. They don't want to hear that they're in rebellion against the God who made them. There's nothing more threatening for an entire worldview which stands like a house of cards built by false beliefs than to have the wind of truth blow against it. And when those winds of truth start blowing against the house of cards of a deceptive worldview, they get mad. They get angry. They get riled up to shut down the wind and stop the truth. Persecution also has a moral component. So there's a truth component, also has a moral component. They hate us and they persecute us because we walk in the light. Proverbs 29 verse 27 says, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. That's the positive side. But he counters it with the negative side. But one whose way is straight or righteous is an abomination to the wicked. So they're living in their sin and they're annoyed by people who aren't living in the same sins. John 3 verse 19, I quoted it already, but hear it again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. They liked their evil deeds. They hated the truth, and those who walked in the truth. First John 3, verse 12 says it more clearly than any of the others. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And why, John goes on in John 3, verse, 1 John 3, 12, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Bottom line, that's what sparked his persecution of his brother. His martyrdom of his brother was the moral component. Persecution also has a financial component. They hate us and they persecute us because, frankly, we're bad for business. This is what landed Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi in Acts 16. Paul had cast a demon out of the little slave girl that was following him around and annoyingly saying, these, these men are preaching of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. She was right, but she was demon-possessed. Paul finally had enough, turned around, cast the demon out, and her handlers got very mad about that because she made them a lot of money by telling fortunes and doing all kinds of evil deeds for people. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Similar thing happens in Acts 19 in Ephesus when the gospel penetrates the city. Paul stays there for a year and a half, and as he stays there and the gospel spreads, all of a sudden, the, the business of selling uh, models of statues of the goddess Artemis go down. So much so that, that their bank accounts are drying up. And so you remember this, this guy who stands up and Demetrius, the silversmith, says, this can't keep going. The way of Christians is bad for business. There's this massive riot in Ephesus in which it seemed like they were going to kill all the Christians finally was alleviated in Saul, but there was huge anger in Ephesus because Christians are bad for business. 
There's also then the authority component. Christ has ultimate authority, and those who follow him will bow to no other authority in his place. This is inherent in our belief of the scriptures, in our belief that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. It's clearly seen in John eleven forty five to 47 when Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead and many people in Jerusalem were believing in Jesus because of that sign. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and the elders got together and they said, we're about to lose our grip on what? Power. We're about to lose our influence. We have to do something about this Jesus and about this Lazarus. We have to put them to death. This is also what culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19. It's a power struggle to preserve supposed authority. It's a clashing of kingdoms. But they just assume that it's two kingdoms on the physical plane. Whereas Jesus says to Pilate, listen, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would have destroyed you all already. Paraphrasing. He doesn't say that. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, my disciples do not fight, and I willingly lay down my life in this moment. They saw Jesus as a threat to their authority. Therefore, they nailed him to a cross. We see this all throughout church history. The early church, especially Polycarp, Polycarp, comes immediately to mind. He's the disciple of the Apostle John, faithfully following and faithfully proclaiming the gospel. In his 86th year, having faced many forms of persecution throughout his life, he finally is arrested, threatened with the arena, the Colosseum, and the tearing of limb and life by lions and all kinds of awful creatures. In his 86th year, they say to him, listen, if you will just say, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser is Kyrios. Just say that, and you can go your merry way. And Polycarp boldly stands and says, my Lord has never once turned from me in these 86 years. How can I turn from him now? Refuses to bow the knee to an authority, claiming authority over Jesus, and is put to death for it. He's a threat to their authority. And then the fifth component, I think I said four earlier, there's five. I don't even know my own notes, apparently. The fifth is the ignorance component. And that's what we see in our text in verse 21. It's the ignorance component. This persecution happens to the church because they don't know the one who sent Jesus. What a fascinating statement because the ones who came against Jesus and the ones who will come against the apostles in the book of Acts are those who claim to know God. They are the established church of the day. They are the religious of the religious, the Pharisees of the Pharisees, as Paul himself claimed in Philippians 3. As pertaining to the law, righteous in their eyes. They were right with God. They were the arbiters of truth. They were the chosen nation of God, the chosen ones of God. They had the corner on righteousness. They claim to be the most religious of all, but Jesus says in reality, they don't know me nor my father. And the reason I know they don't know my father is because they persecute me and they will persecute you. Look down at chapter 16, verse two. Jesus says to his apostles, they will put you out of the synagogues 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This has probably been the reality of persecution, of most persecution through the centuries than any other reality. So those other components play in all the time, but this is probably the one that sparks the most persecution. It is the ignorance of God claiming to know God and doing a service for God by getting rid of this threat to our religion. In our current day, you see that in all kinds of militant religions around the world, putting Christians to death in faraway places like Egypt and Iraq. Why? Because Christians are a threat to them. Why? Well, ultimately because those doing the persecuting do not know God. They do not actually know the Father. So all these components are like sparks which ignite the fires of persecution. A spark of truth and morality and money and authority and ignorance. Or a little bit of all of them mixed in at the moment. And it drives our opponents to hate us, to pursue us, to oppress us, to persecute us, and to get rid of us. So know that if you are going to be on Team Jesus in this world, that the threat to your life is the threat of the evil systems of rebellious mankind. The world will hate you. But in light of that, consider the who of persecution. Finally, get to our head here. Remember the who. Who is that? This is what you must never forget as you face the opposition of the world, and that is the who of persecution. And that is our master. Jesus says in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. In other words, he's saying, consider me in light of your persecution. So consider Jesus for a minute. Who, who was he? What was his, his nature and his practice? How did he live among the world? And, and how did the world treat him in response to what he did? Well, Jesus was the sinless son of God. Perfect in every way, humble, gracious, and a friend of sinners. He healed diseases and cast out demons. He raised the dead to life again. He made the lame to walk. He cured the deaf ears and made them hear again. He opened blind eyes and made them see again. He displayed dominion over creation with such supernatural power that you could not deny that this man is God. He says to the wind and the wave, peace be still, and they stop immediately. He, in love, proclaims the truth to every crowd he ever taught. He spoke with authority and clarity and conviction. He never said anything in his teaching that he had to retract later. He never said something in his proclamation that he had to come back and say, well, what I actually meant was. He never said anything in his teaching that he didn't mean and that didn't carry with it the authority of heaven. And yet, how was he treated? Well, in just a matter of hours from John 15, the whole world will unite. All unbelievers will come together, young and old, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, 
religious and pagan, power broker and power minion, free and slave, lawkeeper and lawbreaker, all of them will unite in their hatred for the incarnate Son of God, and they will with one voice cry out, crucify him. They will reject our Lord and oppose his every word and work. And so, Christian, you too must expect this opposition and hatred to come. It is done to you, he says, on the account of my name. It is not a rejection of you, but of your Lord. You can create your own problems in the world, and Peter informs you about that. Don't suffer for things you shouldn't suffer for, for your own unrighteousness. But Jesus is talking about suffering for his name's sake. And when you do, it's a rejection of Jesus, not of you. And there's unparalleled spiritual blessing here. If you abide in Christ, you can expect to suffer. And in your suffering, you can expect to be blessed. Jesus said that in Matthew 5, verse 11, the last beatitude. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you face the opposition and persecution of the world. You are raised to a level like the prophets of old. And there is great reward for you in heaven. You are in that moment laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Acts 5, verse 41, the apostles are persecuted, imprisoned, threatened with their lives if they keep preaching the gospel. The council finally dismisses them and says, don't ever preach again or you'll face the same reality or worse. They left, verse 41, leaving the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Christian, I'm not sure my response would have been that. I don't think that would have been my first thought. Probably among my first thoughts would have been, how do I never get in this situation again? But they were so ingrained with the mind of Christ that they knew to suffer in the world for Christ was blessed. To be counted worthy of the name. Paul's second letter to Corinth Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. The pathway to knowing the depth of the comfort of our Lord is often through suffering in this world. Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says, I would get rid of everything else. I count it all dung, refuse, garbage. If I can but know Christ and what? the power of his resurrection. Now, if you stop there, we're all like, amen. I'm on, sign me up. And share in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to glory in his resurrection, but the pathway to the resurrection is the cross. The pathway to the glory of resurrected life with Jesus is to take up his cross, to suffer 
with him so that we may be raised with him. Colossians 1, Paul says, I have suffered many things for you and I rejoice that I'm suffering for your sake because I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. In other words, he's saying the means to the spread of the gospel to you in Colossae is through my suffering. And that is a glorious thing. We want the gospel to spread, but we don't want to suffer to make it happen. Paul prayed and rejoiced that he could suffer so that it could happen. 1 Peter 4, verse 14, Peter says, reflecting on the upper room probably, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Beloved, there might be no faster track to knowing the presence of the Spirit of God on your life than the opposition he'll ask you to face from an antagonistic world. It's apparently in that moment of opposition and persecution that, that God meets the believer in a unique way. And the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, he never left you. We know in Romans 8, he is always with you. He's the down payment of your eternal salvation. But there's a uniqueness to his ministry in that moment of opposition and persecution. So how often have I hindered the work of the Spirit out of fear of the shame that would come from the opposition of the unbeliever in front of me? How often have I refused to walk in the power of the Spirit to simply open my mouth and speak the truth guided by the Spirit, no matter the outcome or the consequence, carried along by the wisdom of the Spirit and the prudence of the Spirit and the love of the Spirit. How often have I said, you know, that's just too hard. I'd rather have my comfort than speak the truth in love and know the unique ministry of God's Spirit upon me. Hebrews 11, verse 26, we're called to consider Moses who by his faith thought about the reproach of Christ and weighed it in the balance with the treasures of Egypt. And he considered the reproaches of Christ to be far more valuable than all the riches of an elite status in the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world. Why? The author says, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Friend, if you take your eyes off the who, when opposition comes, you will quickly falter. You will think, woe is me and why me? And you'll be faithless and heartless. But if you remember the who, if you look to the Lord Jesus you will see in that moment the blessing that is there in the persecution that comes upon you. The moment we take our eyes off of, our, off of Christ and upon our persecutor, we deny our Lord. Remember Stephen in Acts 7, Acts 6, he preaches that glorious message and in that message he pulls no punches. He recounts their history to them and he says, listen, you've been disobedient from day one. And you, current generation of Jewish leaders, are no different than the ones back in Moses' day. And I just proved it to you from Scripture. 
and you were used by the devil to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. But even in your rebellion, God provided a savior for you, so repent and believe. And they were so mad at him that they picked up stones to immediately stone him. And as they're stoning him, do you remember what he does instructive for you? Where did he look? To Jesus. He raised his eyes to heaven and God in his kindness parted the realms. I don't know what that means, but he opened heaven to Stephen's eyes only. And he saw Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father, having accomplished his work through suffering. Stephen sees him and is confident that God will give him the strength to do what he's calling him to do right then, which is die by stoning. And as he's dying, having seen Jesus, do you remember his concern? Or do not hold this sin to their account. In other words, save them from their rebellion. This is what will look like for us if we remember the who. We must also then understand the what, lastly. Verses 22 to 25. We must know what's actually true with the opposition and the hatred of the world. And really, this is a super crucial question to get right. Because the world, by their opposition, is telling you that you're an intellectual moron. That you don't see things right. That you have your world all twisted upside down. That you're a danger to society. In their hatred, they tell us that we're on the wrong side of history that we're overbearing, that we're misogynistic. We hate women. We hate others of alternative lifestyles. That we're prejudiced against those who are not like us, that we're legalistic in our moral codes, and that with those moral codes, we're hurting people. We're told that our telling the truth about sin and judgment, eternal condemnation that rests upon sinners to point people to a savior so they can get out of that condemnation, that 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 is itself hate speech. And that it cannot be tolerated. And this is not just something to be made up from some distant land. This is in our own country. This last week at the Mall of America in my home state of Minnesota, a man was told by security that he either had to take his shirt off He had a shirt underneath it. Take that shirt off or leave the mall. You know what his shirt said? You know what was so offensive about his shirt? On the front, it said, Jesus saves. On the back, it had the coexist emblem crossed out with the statement, Jesus is the only way. Somebody apparently turned him into security, said he was a nuisance to society, that he was triggering them and causing and spiking hate in the Mall of America. Therefore, he had to be removed. If you find that interaction online, I think you can see what we will all face at some point in the near future. The world is threatened by our Christian witness, and they will attempt to intimidate us into silence. But to be faithful in the face of that threat, you need to know what is actually true. And what is actually true, Jesus says, is that the world hates my words and my works. And that because they hate my words and my works, they're 
guilty of the great sin of rejection. Jesus' point in verses 22 to 25 is to say that the world has no excuse for their hatred of him or rejection of him. He says, I've come and I've spoken to them the truth and I've revealed to them my power and my glory through my works. And instead of them being humbled and receptive and repenting and believing, rather it has crystallized their rebellious unbelief. Like the same warm sun that can come across a mountain meadow and cause the flowers of that meadow to to come forth and, and give off glorious aromas. So too that same sun can shine upon a stagnant mountain pond, heat it up to the level to where it produces a stagnant stench. The light of Jesus Christ has shone on the world and produced both of those results. To some, the pleasing aroma of Christ. To others, the awful aroma of judgment. And that is what we've seen all throughout John's record. Jesus is rejected and hated because of what he says and what he does. They rejected Jesus and the Father who sent him. Essentially, what they've said to Jesus in his ministry is, hey, thanks for coming to reveal the Father of heaven to us, the God of heaven who made us. But if that's who he is, I mean, you've proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You've explained it every which way till Sunday. But if that's who that is, we're not interested. That's essentially what they've said. If God is like that, we don't want him. And these are supposedly God's people steeped in God's word, turning from God's truth. And all of this, Jesus says, is in keeping with the Old Testament law. The law foretold of this rejection. He quotes Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. It's in both Psalms. But they hated me without a cause. He's proving from the law that they are actually breakers of the law, not keepers of the law. And that he is a fulfillment of that messianic prophecy. And he says, all of that will bring upon them greater judgment. The words that they heard of Christ, the works that they saw of Christ, will provoke them to kill Christ. And it would appear that, just at the look of things, that Jesus and his followers are on the wrong side of history. Right? We're a pretty small not very influential band of followers. Yeah, there's been lots of things done by God's people in the world, in world history, but in reality, it's a pretty small remnant. Looking at it from a human perspective, you could say that the greater judgment and condemnation falls upon Christ and his people. But what Jesus says in this text is, no, the guilt is theirs. They've heard and seen and rejected, and they will face the greater guilt. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. You remember that as he's speaking to the Galileans? He's in Bethsaida and Chorazin. They've had amazing works done more than any other city in his ministry. He says to them, woe to you. If Tyre and Sidon had had pagan cities, if Tyre and Sidon had had those works done in them, they would have repented and believed. Woe to you. You're, You're worse than Sodom. It'll be better for Sodom on judgment day than for you. Now, does that mean Sodom had no sin? No, Sodom still had sin. But Sodom didn't have the revelation of Jesus Christ in their midst. The sin of rejection of truth is producing greater judgment. And you must then understand the what. 
what is actually true in the rejection and hatred of the world is that judgment day is coming and Jesus has clearly told us how that will go. The world has and the world will condemn us and malign us and reject us but know that this rejection is not of us but of our Lord of which we are his servants. Know that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. We hold fast to his word and we proclaim his word. Every Sunday when we gather, we enthrone the word on this sacred desk. It does not matter who's here speaking. What matters is what's here speaking. And we submit our lives in totality to this word. And we say by our presence, by our worship, by our attitude, by our obedience, that we want God's word to have its way in our life. And then we take this word and we go out and we do the works of this Christ who speaks to us. Namely, we love one another. We forgive one another. We're kind to one another. We pursue the unity that he's given us with one another. We go forth as ambassadors and witnesses into a lost world for the sake of his glory. And just know that all of that, just just that reality, that, that very simple essence of what it means to be the church puts you immediately at odds with the world. Because the world hates the words of Christ and the works of Christ. And that's exactly what we are. Shaped by the words of Christ, called to the works of Christ, and we are his workmanship. Created for good works, what he has prepared beforehand for us to do. So the world will hate you because that is who you are. And when you understand the what, deception falls away as the world presses upon you and says, this is what's reality, you can say, no, actually this is what is reality. This is not what's true. What Christ has said is true. Friend, it's easy for you and me to be pressed in by this intimidation factor of the world, to be pressed to the fringes of society, to be scared back into our holy huddles and to disengage from the world so that we don't stir up problems. I have wrestled with this text because I am so convicted by this text. I would rather keep the peace of relationships in the fear of mankind Maintaining status quo with those I know in my life who don't know Jesus. I'd rather in my sinfulness walk out of the room having them like me than having them know the truth about Jesus. Beloved, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are like him in his image, then with his prudence, with his wisdom, led by his spirit, with his truth, we will be willing to have the uncomfortable conversation. To ask the difficult questions. To press into the the heart of our unbelieving coworker 
neighbor, relative, friend, acquaintance. To say to them, hey, has anyone ever told you the story of mankind and their rebellion against God and the hope given through Jesus? Or whatever it is you lead in with with the gospel. I don't mean to put my guilt on you as though you're not doing this. You t- so many of you tell me every week of how God's given you another opportunity to witness, and I praise God for you. You challenge me, and I rejoice in that. Beloved, may we follow Christ all the more and take up our cross, willing to endure the shame, the rejection, and the reviling that our Lord endured as we declare his gospel. J.C. Ryle said, mere churchmanship and outward profession are a cheap religion, of course, and cost a man nothing. But real, vital Christianity will always bring with it a cross. The potential areas of conflict are rising in our society. I've told you that often. I don't really even need to tell you that. You, you understand that inherently. There's things up for grabs in our culture's worldview that haven't been up for grabs in decades, centuries. But they're up for grabs, and, and actually, they're, they're beyond up for grabs. We've lost the battle for society's mind about these matters. The majority of you is, is anti-truth. And so you're gonna rub shoulders with people who hate the truth and hate those who peddle it. But the world has always hated those who speak the truth about sin, judgment, and salvation. But Christ is with you by his spirit and his power upon you, he will help you. So know the why, remember the who, and understand the what. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for its help, for its convicting power upon our soul. I confess to you again my sin of laziness and fearfulness in the face of men. And I beg of you, Lord, to sanctify me and to change me, to make me courageous like your son was. Help me, Father, to be filled with your spirit, willing to speak, willing to put myself out there, willing to take the shame and the reviling that will come. Lord, I pray that for this, your church as well. Help us this week to be your faithful servants carrying forth the message of this glorious good news. May all praise be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just close us for our time together. Sorry, Stuart, you're all the way up here. And thank you. You're okay to not sing again? All right. We invite you back tonight at six o'clock for our evening service. I would encourage you to consider that time of worship together again. The senior fellowship is getting together right afterwards for lunch. So if you're part of that, I know there's plenty of food. Even if you didn't bring anything, uh, if you are part of that group, I know they would love to have you. So you can make your way to the family center for that meeting. God's grace.